So we're looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Um, So if you'd read along with me. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, these are the words of God, more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, Thanks for this time. Thanks for the opportunity uh, to read your words to us, to think um, perhaps your thoughts after you. Um, and I just pray that you uh, would be with this time together. Um, it already feels irregular that I, pre- I read the sermon uh, text, but I pray that you would be with us, that you give us peace in a time where it doesn't feel sometimes peaceful for people. Um, and I just pray that you would meet us that you'd um, raise the eyes of our hearts, help us to see you afresh, uh, to love you, uh, to be encouraged by you, that you'd help us to see Jesus, that we'd be able to sit in his presence wherever we are with who he is. And I pray that this would be a time uh, that would be replenishing, a time that would be refreshing, a time even where, if it's challenging, that it would be a time that um, makes us better and more human. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, how are we? <laughs> back, to, back to normal. Uh, we doing okay? Yeah? Is it midterm still? I feel like the Davidson faculty has a PR. A personal best? Is that five weeks in a row, six weeks in a row at this point? They are just cruising. Uh, it's amazing. Just beating all of their previous bests. Anyway, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin, and I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, It's a Christian campus ministry at Davidson College that exists uh, to serve this campus, and really for you all, wherever you are and however you are. And what we mean by that is RUF isn't for one kind of person. um, It's for every kind of person. That's our intention, to be welcoming, be a place where any kind of person can come whether you're from any personal background, whether you're from any scene on campus, um, wherever you are, even with Jesus or Christianity, we hope you feel welcome. Whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, convinced or unconvinced, um, or even just something in between or none of the above, we're really glad you're here with us, and we hope you do feel welcome. We have a couple of special guests uh, today, uh, a couple of people in the back. From Shearer Presbyterian Church have brought some snacks for us. Uh, one just left. Uh, she maybe knew she was coming uh, to be introduced, but uh, thanks so much for doing that, and thanks for staying up late with us, and if you afterwards maybe get a chance to say hello and thanks, 
Also, Rob Spock is with us. Just, you want to raise your hand, Rob, just real quick? <laughs> Rob ha- is nice enough to come and stay up late with us a little bit. And uh, Rob, is, if you don't know Rob, he's the chaplain here at Davidson College. And really, uh, at the end of the day, he makes what we do and many other groups on campus possible. So thanks to Rob. And if you get a chance, thank him after and say hello. And he's really here to meet you. Uh, it's great probably to see me do my thing. We're good friends. It'll be good for him to see that. Do his heart well, maybe. But uh, I, I'm really excited that you get a chance to meet Rob, and Rob gets a chance to meet you. And that's really the purpose of this. So if you want to say hello, do that. And I would also say that um, I can vouch for Rob. He's a good, dear friend. So uh, he'll be a good person to meet. Okay. So... All that's to say, also, if you're just new, and this is the first time you've ever been here, or maybe it's the first time in a while, or maybe you're not really sure what this is, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the risk, too. We're really glad to have you as well. Uh, And we hope to get to meet you afterwards as well. Okay. So this semester, this is large group, and what we do in large group is we've been walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, book, the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And... Um, I said this before, and I'll say it again. These chapters likely contain the most famous speech uh, by the most famous person in history, Jesus, and arguably the most famous book in the world, the Bible. Uh, And so I'm making a case based on all this worldwide, world historical fame to say that I think the Sermon on the Mount is essential Christian reading. It's essential Christian reading. Historically, it's been central to every generation and every geographic culture's take on Christianity. It's been essential to our and to others' understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, to be this word called a disciple, okay, which is literally a student of Jesus. So, but whether you call yourself Christian or wouldn't feel so comfortable calling yourself Christian, uh, we all tend to read the Sermon on the Mount the exact same way. Our tendency is to see this three more chapters of good advice I should really just get around to. Okay, As if Jesus' words to us and elsewhere are just another exercise in our daily self-improvement project. Right? Like healthy snacking. A learning to speed read. Okay? That's sort of how sometimes it gets in this category of thought. And instead I want us to choose to, to read the Sermon on the Mount the way that Jesus is inviting us to read it. To, to read it with, uh, to read this passage, to see our lives and to see the world in a new way with spiritual imagination. So that's why our large group series, if you, I know you're dying to know, uh, is called Beyond Good Advice, Seeing Our Lives with Spiritual Imagination. Okay, so I did the subtitle this time. Um, so anyway, this week we're officially halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're officially halfway through chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. We finished chapter 5 a few weeks ago, and that was Jesus' description of what righteous living, righteous love looks like. It starts with motives and moves outward, even to embrace our enemies. And then last week we began chapter 6, and we looked at Jesus' description of how to love rightly. Where do we get the power to do that? What do we get the poise internally? And it starts with this deeply personal, almost private place. It starts with actions like we're going to discuss this week. Actions like prayer. We're going to talk about prayer this week. Okay? So this is usually where I pray. I'm just going to keep moving. So um, uh, pray uh, with me if you're thinking about it as I go. And here's what we're going to do. So 
Dr. Samuel Johnson. Does anyone know who that is? An intellectual giant. Okay, Dr. Samuel Johnson. Born in 1704, he lives until 1794, and Johnson dominates 18th century Brit lit. Okay, 18th century, 1700s British literature. Okay, that scene is his. He owns it, okay? The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, I didn't know that existed until recently, describes Samuel Johnson as, quote, arguably the most distinguished man of letters in English history. Okay, the most distinguished man of letters in English history. That's a pretty bold claim, okay? Just to give you a sample of this man's intelligence and work ethic, Johnson single-handedly wrote a dictionary of the English language in the course of eight years with 40,000 word entries and 115,000 quotations to illustrate the word usages by himself. Okay, the French equivalent dictionary in French took 55 years and 40 scholars. This guy's a beast (laughs) of British literature. Okay? All this is not to mention the many, many witty sayings that if you quote Samuel Johnson, automatic English class points and other writings that still make him famous and read even to this day. But anyway, in addition, I don't know if you knew this, in addition to being a prolific and brilliant writer, Johnson, Samuel Johnson, was a devout Christian. And he writes about his faith very vividly and very candidly in his diary. Okay? He's a diary and a prayer journal. And Samuel Johnson, if, uh, if you read it carefully, gives us a record of his efforts to get up in the morning and pray over the course of many years of his life. So I'm going to just read some excerpts from his journal entries, diary, okay? 1738, he writes, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time in which I have spent in sloth. <laughs> Nineteen years later, in 1757, two years, by the way, after the completion of that Dictionary of the English Language, Okay. Johnson writes, Oh, mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. 1761, I've resolved until I'm afraid to resolve again. Three years later, 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into the grossest of sluggishness. Okay. <laughs> My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness, to rise early. 1764, five months later, Johnson resolves to rise up earlier, and his words, not later than six, if I can. <laughs> Less than a year later, 1765, I purpose to rise at eight. <laughs> because, though I shall not rise early... It will be much earlier than now I rise, for I often lie until two. (laughs) 1769. I am not yet in a state to form many resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning at eight and by degrees at six. 1775. When I look back on resolutions of improvement and amendments, which have year after year been made and year after year been broken, why do I yet try and resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. And he then resolves to rise at eight. <laughs> Finally, final entry, 1791, 43 years after his first initial journal entry about praying. Okay, 43 years. 
as that first desire recorded. This is three years before his death, 1791. Samuel Johnson writes, I will not despair. Help me. Help me, oh my God. And then he resolves to wake up at eight or sooner in order to avoid idleness. Okay. So this account of Samuel Johnson both comforts me in the one hand and also kind of confuses me. Samuel Johnson wrote 29 major works. 29 major. That's not total books or pamphlets or essays or treatises or poems. That's 29 major ones, okay? Including that 40,000 entry, 115,000 quote-based English dictionary by himself, okay? Clearly, it was not for lack of effort. Or it wasn't this issue that Johnson had some sort of bad work ethic, And while some might be tempted to dismiss Johnson's struggle as a lack of faith or a misguided literalism about Jesus' example, you know, Jesus got up early to pray, so should we, or we might even be tempted to explain Johnson's troubles as proof that he's simply just not a morning person, historically. Um, Instead, I think our passage tonight would suggest that failures like Samuel Johnson experienced over the course of his life have something specifically to do with prayer. There's something about prayer that's extremely difficult, and that feeling is shared by many people in this room. I, for one, professionally religious, really struggle to pray, to even want to pray sometimes, especially in private, especially one-on-one with God. So you see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, Jesus is teaching us on prayer because Jesus knows something about us. He knows we're not naturals at prayer. He knows that prayer can be difficult for us. And so Jesus allows us to be honest. He allows us to voice things like prayer can feel confusing. Prayer can feel boring. Prayer can feel guilt-inducing. Just look at the life of Samuel Johnson. And when we embrace this posture as learners and not as experts we can start to hear Jesus tell us why prayer can be so frustrating. We can start to hear Jesus tell us how prayer can be something that we can actually delight in and even long for. And really, no matter where you are with prayer tonight, unsure, sure, troubled, hearing Jesus out on the why and the how of prayer is going to be helpful. And for that reason, Uh, your outline tonight, which is on the front side of your handout, is going to go over these two categories thought, the why and the how, of how prayer works in some detail. So our first point in verses 5 through 8, we're going to discuss why prayer can be so frustrating. Why is prayer so frustrating to do? Why is prayer so frustrating to want to do? And we're going to see that Jesus tackles this feeling head on by talking about how not to pray. And second, we're going to look in verses 9 through 15, and we're going to discuss how prayer can be so enjoyable. That prayer can actually be something that we want to do, something that we enjoy doing. And we're going to see that Jesus nurtures this feeling by showing us how to pray. And that prayer, um, you see this in prayer's person and prayer's purpose and also our poverty. It's a lot of P's, intentional tongue twister there. Uh, That's also underneath your second point on your handout. But as usual, 
Fear not. We're going to begin with the beginning. I'm going to look at verses 5 through 8 and why prayer can be so frustrating. And then we'll get into the sort of the how to pray and then the different parts of prayer, the person, the purpose, and our poverty. Okay. So in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is building a case for why prayer can be so difficult. And he does this through two common first century examples of how not to pray. Jesus' first example of how not to pray occurs in verses 5 and 6. We spent a fair amount of time on this last week, so I'm really going to do the brief version of it just to kind of recap a little bit and maybe add a few things. But we kind of talked about this in context with the hypocrites, with giving, and with fasting. And so I'm going to be brief. So simply put, Jesus is pointing out in these verses, the first two verses, 5 and 6, that we can often do good things for bad reasons. We can often do good things for bad reasons. We can pray a good thing for the primary benefit of other people seeing us pray a bad reason. Therefore, Jesus suggests that we spend the majority of our prayer time in private, personally, with God, as we are, not as we project ourselves to be. And so while Jesus is aiming these first few verses, 5 and 6, at a primary religious, primarily religious or spiritual people, people who are tempted to be publicly pious, I don't know, people like me, okay, or people who are, maybe some of you who are Christian religious group leaders or leaders who are spiritually known on campus. Jesus also then aims verses 7 through 8 at a primarily irreligious audience, those people who are usually not that spiritually minded, at least publicly, people like other people in this room, okay? People like we have a group of people on each side of that probably and somewhere in between, okay? And so I would say that many people in the 21st century, including Christians like me, do fall into the habits that Jesus is outlining in verses 7 through 8. Uh, prayer like the Gentiles. Gentiles is a technical word that just means non-Jews, means literally the nations. It means, in this case, probably Greeks and Romans. Uh, and in the first century, they had a particular way of praying, and it looks a lot like the way that maybe if you asked a common person in the 21st century, they would say prayer works. Kind of like a wishing upwards. Okay, like wishing upwards. Okay. So it could be like a short burst, you know, like kind of out of the side of the mouth, Shot, shooting upwards toward the ceiling, maybe with one eye cocked open just in case there's a boomerang effect and it hits you again. Or maybe like just so you don't really, you're on the swivel to make sure no one saw you do it. Okay, that could be that kind of prayer. But oftentimes, especially if we're in crisis, the prayer can get long and desperate. Okay, many first century Romans and Greeks were at best agnostic about the God's existence. But when they wanted something really badly or they were in a really bad spot, a tight squeeze, they often piled on the divine titles over and over and over and over again. Uh, they'd flatter a god and to secure his attention by flattery. Okay? And then once they thought they got the hearing, like, now you're paying attention to me, now that I've done all of the things that I've said, all the beautiful things about you, they reminded the deity of all of the favors and sacrifices and good deeds they had performed for him or her. Okay? And then in their honor. And this length according to many, many writers, proved their sincerity, which in turn merited that the God would give them what they wanted. Right? All they had to do was find this formula, this right formula, to have it work. So if they got the right words in the right order 
with the right number of words and the right sequence, they got guaranteed success. In other words, praying became like cracking a safe. Okay? It became like balancing a chemistry equation. If, I, if we can say X amount of Y words to this goddess, she will give me Z every single time. We can say X amount of words and, and oh, sorry, X amount of Y words and I'll get Z every time. But Jesus tells us in order to get what we need, we don't have to go through this proving of ourselves before God. The God is a God we do not have to manipulate. The God does not need manipulation. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's how Jesus puts it. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, your parents' health, the summer internship, that certain grade and that certain class that you just need. All these things don't depend on what we think they depend on. Us. Okay? Yes, I would say prayer accomplishes things and it's essential. But you don't need to say the right things in the right way for the right length of time to get what you need. God already knows what you need. And he's waiting to give it to you. Because in Jesus, God is your father who loves you. He's not the summer camp boss. He's not the internship boss that you have to impress in order to get up the next rung of the ladder. And believing this truth, okay? If you believe this truth, that your prayers don't have to be long, they don't have to be eloquent enough, this will free you up to actually want to pray more. You will want to pray more if you can pray briefly. You will want to pray more passionately if, if you can pray briefly. If you're not afraid of making mistakes when you pray, you'll actually desire to pray more often. A few days ago, my youngest child, Millie, okay, Millie's five years old. She's got blonde, curly hair, big blue eyes. She randomly told my wife, Mommy, I don't want to vote when I grow up. <laughs> it was out of nowhere. And so my wife was alarmed less by the declining American percentage of people who actually vote, and more by Millie worrying about something that was going to happen in, say, 13 years. <laughs> okay? And so she asked, why is that, Mill? And Millie looked up at her with her big blue eyes and a, and a very creased forehead, and she said something like, I'm scared I'll fail at it. I'm scared I'm going to fail at it. Okay? You see, Millie thought voting was like this big adult test that you had to do. And that you could fail and then you'd have to like not get to adulthood. <laughs> okay? So, somewhere along that she picked that up. And while some of our political science majors may be considering that seriously, <laughs> especially given recent things, um, I will say that Millie missed the point of voting. Right? She missed the point of voting by thinking that you could fail voting. Okay? It's like a, some sort of adult test. And I'm going to say likewise, Jesus' point in verses 5 through 8 is that we often miss the point of praying. We can miss the point of praying. These verses are just not, these verses are not like object lessons and bad prayer technique. That's not just what they are. Jesus is trying to tell us a deeper, more relevant truth about prayer. Prayer isn't getting things that we want. It's not about getting things that we want. Prayer is about getting God. Prayer isn't about getting things that we want. Prayer is about getting God. The God who is in secret, 
the God who sees in secret, the God who knows what you need before you ask for it. And Jesus underlines this deeper point of prayer in verses 9 through 15 with his description of how to pray. And this description of how to pray is often called, he gives us a sample, the Lord's Prayer. Okay, And for my note takers, we're now on point two, how prayer can be so enjoyable. One reason we know that prayer is primarily about enjoying God's presence is the way that Jesus frames his prayer. He starts from the very beginning by saying, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And verse 9, God is telling us what to call him in prayer. Not God, but Father, or Dad, or Daddy. And calling uh, God Father, we get to reset our expectations. We get to reset our ambitions in prayer. Okay, so this is, a lot of this is taken from a friend and fellow campus minister named Britton Wood. I still, I've signed the honor code. You can go look it up in chambers. Um, so I'm borrowing some thoughts here. Uh, but Britton describes how most of us naturally and by default think of God. When it comes to prayer, we don't tend to think of God as our father. We tend to think God is some sort of bad Santa. <laughs> okay? Some sort of bad Santa. You see, if you, come, if you come to prayer with this idea that it's about listing a bunch of things that I want and these circumstances that you want to have happen, you and I quickly find out that our childhood Santa, a.k.a. our parents, had a much better track record of giving us what we wanted. On average, we got more items from our childhood Christmas lists than we do from our adult prayer lists. At the very least, it was obvious to figure out what happened and when it happened, right? It all kind of came in a pile in front of the, front of the fireplace on one day. So we could, we could know that we had gotten this prayer answered or this, this list had been taken care of. And we knew who it came from, okay? We knew it was, generally most of us knew it was from Santa if we celebrated Santa, okay? And we knew when to expect it, right? It was on a timeline, December 25th. Boom. But what if we stopped judging God by our circumstances, right? What if we didn't apply the Santa rubric to God? What if we, what if we didn't say to God, I'm going to trust you, God, if and when you give me what I want? Instead, so like, what if we stopped judging God, the Father, by our circumstances, and we started judging our circumstances by our Father's love. What would that look like to judge our circumstances by our Father's love? Here's what that means. Go there with me about what a good father as a metaphor would look like. Okay, this is me when I'm at my best as a father. And it's, it's, it's pretty pitiful comparatively, especially to God, but also to other fathers. Okay, I care more about what my kids are becoming. And I care a lot less about, what, about giving them what they want all the time. That's a decent father, okay? Kids, especially the ages of five and seven, tend to ask for things that they don't need but definitely want, okay? So a lot of what you're doing is caring about what the kid's becoming versus what, giving them what they want. So let me give you some samples, okay? It's Saturday morning, and I'm tired because it's early. <laughs> or it's 6 p.m., and I'm chasing kids down to come to dinner. That's when I'm most tempted to be a bad dad, Okay? just to give them what they want already, right? In the hopes that they're just going to let me sleep on Saturday morning, or they're going to give me some work-home transition me time, 
Oh, yeah, sure. Just keep doing what you're doing up there. I'm not going to pay attention. We'll just let the let dinner get cold, okay? So they'll sit there and say, hey, Dad, bre- caramel chews for breakfast? And I'll go, candy? Sure. Right? That's bad dadding, okay? Or, yes, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You want to jump on the beds? And then you want to do gymnastics off of the beds? Oh, I'm sure you'll land that forward flip on your back. You'll be fine. Okay, these are true stories. <laughs> you see, I actually want them to grow up healthy and not in a neck brace. I don't know if that's crazy. And so if I want that to be the case, if I care about who they're becoming and not just giving them what they want, I have to be able not just to say yes and I love you, although I, I by the way, really, really, really like saying those words. Okay, But when I also have to say no and also wait and let's talk about it. Okay? Preferably with your mother. <laughs> okay? And when they get really upset and they don't understand why I need to say no or wait, oftentimes all I can really say is trust me or I'm in charge. Okay? After all, they don't really understand. I can't explain the medical science to them of why they have to go get a shot. Right? Any more than I can really understand or explain to you why certain people get internships in the summer. It is a mystery. Okay? And the fact that God sometimes has to tell me, tell me and you, trust me, or I'm in charge, is because he's not, in fact, an earthly father, but he is, in the words of our passage, our father in heaven. Okay? In the Bible, the God dwells in heaven, and that means, according to the rest of Scripture, that he's way above. He's far superior to human beings. His thoughts and his ways are infinitely, internally more than our ways and our thoughts. Okay? Therefore, hallowed or holy be your name follows suit. It makes tons of sense to go in sequence like that. If God is infinite and God is eternal in heaven, it only makes sense to pray that God's name, his reputation, his character, to pray that that would get the respect, infinite and eternal respect it deserves. Okay? We're just trying to represent reality here. Okay? But then as our thoughts move from the Amazon wish list in our hearts and minds to actually God's character, the Lord's prayer moves with us, or maybe even moves our hearts and our minds. And we get to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this petition is where we actually start to encounter the purpose of prayer. Okay, Remember how I said being a good father is caring not just about giving your kids what they want, but caring about who your kids are becoming. That's what God is after in verse 10. He's changing us for the better. And he starts this work internally, reshaping our thoughts and our feelings and our desires with this very prayer. By frequently praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we start to change slowly but surely over time. We begin to reorient our hearts to long for heaven's truth and beauty and goodness to become an earthly reality. For renewal that's well beyond us for all things new, for the world set right. And this produces beautifully, helpfully, an incredibly sane perspective on life. Because we begin to imagine a world that revolves around God and his actions, 
and not a world that revolves solely around us and our successes and failures. Okay? The exam, the friendship, the future plan actually starts to bend into God's bigger plan. Okay? It loses its pressure on us, its burden on us, without losing its purpose. We go from me against the world into a posture of, can I be of some use to this world? And so God's will slowly becomes more and more important to us. Let your will be done on earth through me. I want to be in God's will. I want to be doing God's will. And what is God's will? The million-dollar Christian question, right? Okay, It's stated over and over again in Scripture. It's actually not that hard. I'm going to settle this once and for all. Ready? One verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Whoa, whoa, this is the will of God, your sanctification? Okay, so sanctification simply means becoming a better version of yourself, a better person, caring more about what God cares about. But please notice here and everywhere else in the Bible, when it talks about God's will, it does not talk about um, that particular DC internship you're supposed to do. Or that future, that future career path with Deloitte or Google. It doesn't name a dorm or roommates you're supposed to live with. It doesn't give you your major on a platter. This is God's will for you. <laughs> okay? The will of God can be done anywhere and with anyone. It's a wide and it's a spacious place that God will help make happen. He will make it happen. Yes, through your efforts. Absolutely, through my efforts. Absolutely. But no, you cannot miss out on God's will. Okay, it's not the, the roaming red dot that you have to land perfectly. So here's, if you can start to buy some of this, are you starting to feel purpose in life without all of the pressure? To summarize, verse 9 tells us our God, and our God is a father in heaven. That's the person we pray to. And verses 10 and 11 tell us the purpose of prayer. We pray to change the world and ourselves for the better. So our prayers change from give me, give me, give me, give me, okay, which is what my usual prayers are, okay, to it's about you. It's about yours. It's about your world. And then as we get swept into this huge, beautiful vision, we begin to pray, change me, change me, change me. Soren Kierkegaard pressed this effect of prayer really beautifully, and he wrote this. The function of prayer is not to influence God. The function of prayer is not to influence God, but to, rather to change the nature of the one who prays. Okay? So the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. That is, look, God knows what's needed. Prayer is not informational. Oh, gosh, uh, that's, uh, I forgot about that detail. Okay, he created it. He knows it, okay? And God cares more about the details of the world, more about the details of who we are than all of us in this room combined do. Okay, so prayer isn't actually about persuading God either. Prayer is about knowing God. And in this secret space, prayer changes things by first changing us. The more we pray, the easier it is to pray because we start to see prayer's point. 
prayer becomes about getting to be with God like this as we are. The only one who knows us up to down and down to up and loves us whole. And really verses 12 through 15 are just an encouragement to bring our whole selves, our full and often needy selves into God's shaping presence. We get to bring our poverties into a rich supplier. We get to believe like the early church did that billions are fed bread from afar because of prayer. We get to believe that the world is held together by those people who pray the Lord's prayer. So in confidence, we can confess our physical weakness in the face of growing anxieties about the future, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Let me give you the Davidson paraphrase, okay? Help me live tonight, in this moment, to thank you for what you did to bring dinner from all of those farmers' fields to the sandwich line in commons. Help me to trust you're going to do it again tomorrow And even more, God, help me to trust that four years from now in a big city with a Bachelor of Arts or Science and from a liberal arts institution, you will still continue to take care of me and feed me. Okay? So then also we get to confess our spiritual weakness in the face of growing guilt. Okay? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Okay? And here's again my paraphrase. Show me your love and affection for all of me, my glittering image and my angry inner stranger who I hide from in the mirror. Do it all over again. Please, please do it about that thing in my life for the hundredth time. Love me as if you love me for the first time yet again. Forgive me so that I might be able to go and forgive other people twice, maybe three times if not more, for something a lot less hurtful. Okay. And finally, we get to confess our moral weakness. So we've looked at our physical needs, those, the poverty of our physical needs that cause so much anxiety for the future. We've looked at our spiritual weaknesses, that growing sense of guilt that we feel in the presence of God. And finally, we get to confess our moral weaknesses in the face of a growing sense of restless boredom. Okay. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. I don't want to be here praying. I don't want to be doing this. I stink at prayer. Help my unbelief. Teach me how to do this again, God. Help this not turn into a box I check to feel okay about myself or to get the stuff I want. Keep me safe from myself, even from the worst parts of myself. Sitting with ourselves and all of that screaming stillness of our weaknesses all these inadequacies is actually what makes prayer so hard. I think the man who wrote the book, the literal book on the English language, Samuel Johnson, couldn't get up and pray in the morning because God is asking people like him and people like us to bring all of ourselves to him. All of our abilities and all of our skills, but also all of our fears and all of our guilt and all of our restlessness. And all of this makes it feel like God has removed himself from us, like he's too busy for us. But although God runs the universe from heaven, he's not too busy to sit with me on earth. And although I am weak, God does not flee my neediness. Why? 
Because the same Jesus who teaches us to pray gave his life on a cross to make our God our Father. I don't know if you've ever seen those like black and white pictures of like the 1960s White House. Okay, you have JFK in a gray suit with a bunch of people, and they're like conferencing over the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay, and all of a sudden you kind of like pan down in the picture, and there is like John John, the two-year-old, playing like tanks and armies underneath the underneath the desk. Or there's some pictures where he's actually crawling on top of the desk as we have this conversation about like the Cuban Crisis, which is amazing. Um, and so there's a sense in which that like Oval Office scene of JFK, president, full power, in swing, governing the, the, most of the known world in the 1960s, and then John John coming in, instant access to power and love without even knocking. That's what we're being promised here in the, by God being our father. There, we're never an interruption to our father in heaven. We're always a delight. No matter what he's up to. And in fact, he might actually be up to that moment that you're sitting still and I'm sitting still and squirming. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thanks for some of the challenge of this passage for prayer for us. Um, I pray that this would be an invitation. uh, The one place in our lives where we can just bring all of ourselves. One place where we don't have to feel like a burden. The one place where we get to be ourselves. And I pray that we would feel extremely loved. I pray that we would have a moment where we could just be still and know that you're God. And that that would make all the difference. And that we could see you at work in this world. And that prayer would be something that we would long to do. Prayer would be something that wouldn't be the struggle, but would be the rest. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.